Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. If you would like to help Room 9, please visit their support page. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9, if you better yourself, you better the world. Thank you for joining me in this spectacular episode of Room 9. I sit down with Brian Costello from Core Mental Health. He is a counselor there, and he has been in this field for, I believe he said, almost 10 years. So he has some experience, not only lived experience, but also experience in working in the field as well. And we had a great conversation. It's kind of a cool story how I came across him when I was still reporting to court. The lady in the court ended up seeing his article in the Buffalo News written up and she gave it to me and said, you should try to get him on the podcast. So I reached out to him on LinkedIn. We ended up grabbing coffee and we planned a time to sit down and have a conversation. And that's what we did. Another interesting story about this, the day I went to record with him, I was just having a completely crappy, terrible off day, unmotivated, just trying to fight through it. I ended up getting there. I forgot headphones. It's the first time I ever forgot anything for a podcast. Forgot headphones, and it still ended up just being a great conversation. After we got done talking, I just felt rejuvenated. I felt alive again, and it was just it was awesome to kind of witness and sit back and watch as I was really just unmotivated to do anything, fighting the temptation just to even cancel it. That's what kind of crappy mood I was in. And after I got done talking with him, he's got a great spirit, and it just kind of lifted me up. So I hope this conversation does the same for you. If you have some free time, why don't you head on over to room9podcast.com, check out what we got going there. We are officially doing video production, which is pretty awesome. We are just wrapping up our first technical final video for Evergreen Health. Look for that because I am going to be allowed to share that on the website and everything else, so you guys will have to check it out. I've done a couple other little things, some quick little things I did where the vlogs started. And what I want to commit to everybody is this, because I've struggled with that perfectionism. And just getting into the, the field of video production, sometimes it's easy to, or even if you've been in it forever, it's easy to not put out something because you're waiting for the right gear or you're waiting for that perfect moment or I got to have everything done perfect and it needs to look good and the b-roll needs to look perfect and the a-roll needs to be perfect it just it can hold you up and really I find that's a cover-up for fear of if people gonna like this or people not gonna like this so my commitment to myself to everybody who supports and helps room nine is just to keep producing content starting this week whether even if it's just something on my phone, video-wise, I'm going to start producing more content, stop having excuses, stop waiting for the perfect dialogue to be written out, and I'm just going to do it. And as things get better, all those things will come with it. So that is my commitment. So check out the vlogs on YouTube, Room 9 Podcast on YouTube. Follow, like, subscribe. Get on our social media. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. We are on Instagram. And that is all I got for you. You guys will really enjoy this episode and look for all of Brian and Core Mental Health's information in the bio of this podcast episode. So I will talk to you guys later. I love you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to this. You guys are the best. Enjoy. Peace.
report in here, Brian. I how did I come? Oh yeah, that's right. Colleen Gibbons mm-hmm. from what is that? Erie County Court. Yeah. She uh, handed me one of my last days seeing her. Handed me an article of you in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Said, "Oh, you should interview him." And I think I, I found you on LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah. And then um, we kind of just met up for coffee. So I'm glad you answered that because I had a good time chat with you when we had coffee. Yeah. And, likewise. You know, it was really. Um, it was cool. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for inviting me to your new office. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Which is pretty, is pretty nice. Downtown <laughs> Buffalo. But yeah, so I want to just kind of have a conversation with you. I know we talked about a lot of different subjects, what we could talk about. And I figured I just, like I usually do, just let the conversation kind of flow by itself and yeah. see where it goes. Yeah. But I mean, mainly I thought we'd talk, you know, touch base on some mental health. And I don't know if you want to give a, a rough, brief description of how you got to where you're at. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been in the field more or less about nine years and, uh, my, uh, undergrad is in psychology. So I went to Buff State for psych. Um, and before that I, I was actually in art school and switched majors. You know, you can't do a ton with uh, a bachelor's in psychology. So, mm-hmm. but I did know that I wanted to work with addiction mainly, uh, based on my past issues with addiction. And so I, once I completed school, I was working at like a local health food store and I started applying for um, like outpatient addiction treatment and took a job uh, in the North Towns at an addiction treatment center and um, started working towards a KSAC, which is a credentialed alcohol and substance abuse counselor. Um, and I did outpatient for a couple of years. Um, I was like a liaison for courts out in the North Towns as well, a domestic violence court. And then I took a job uh, in the South Towns. It took me about two years to get the case act. And I did that for a total of three years outpatient and then decided and was really strongly encouraged to go back to school, um, which I never thought I would go back to school. I, you know, I, I did well towards the end of the four year program, but I could not stand school uh, towards the end. I was really burnt out from it. What um, about school kind of drove me nuts? Because I, I never minded like the research and mm-hmm. Stuff like that. I love doing stuff like that, but only what I want to do it on. So I always yeah. hated being told what to yeah. do it on. Yeah, I I don't know. I was just like a rebel without a cause still, um, <laughs> you know, early 20s. So I don't know. I, I mean, it, it was similar. If it was an area that I was like passionate about, I was going to do a ton of work on. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I took like a, my senior thesis class was like psychopharmacology and she let me, I begged the teacher to let me do it on like herbs. And, um, I was like, for some reason, anti-medicine back then and very opinionated at least. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I did, you know, a ton of research on herbs and vitamins and, uh, as it relates to mental health, um, Luckily, I'm not so defiant for no reason uh, anymore, so I have kind of a middle of the road. <laughs> How old were you when that was going on? Mm, let's see. I probably 22, 23. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I feel like that age is like when you, whatever you're learning about at that time or kind of into, mm-hmm. you're almost like totally hardcore that. Oh, yeah. And because yeah. I remember when I first got into like the natural things, mm-hmm. like you start to be totally anti pharmaceuticals <laughs> yeah. and all that. It's all yeah. about the natural things. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's funny as you kind of like your knowledge grows and things, you're like, all right, well, not everything pharmaceutical yeah. is bad. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, some of that has to do with like, getting sober some of it has to do with um you know when when like the brain is under stress so like my brain was under stress during that time period Mm -hmm. a lot of it people tend to be like 
black and white thinkers most of the time when, when we are under stress. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, and that was me for sure. You know, in my, in my early twenties, I was a very black and white thinker. So yeah, I completed school, um, started working those outpatients and then went back to grad school at UB for social work. And I loved, I loved that program. I had worked in the field for three or four years at that point, just a lot more mature. I kind of went back as like an adult learner mm -hmm. and I got a ton out of the program. And the goal really was to actually get out of addiction treatment. I was very burnt out and, you know, a lot of it had to do with kind of my own like counter transference. So, you know, the people coming in had very similar issues to what I had experienced and stuff I had gone through, you know, within my family and just was, um, it's just a lot, you know, uh, and at that time, right around 2015 or so, uh, a few friends started to die and, uh, it was just very difficult to kind of keep everything separate. So that was the, that was the goal to go back to grad school so I could do something besides just addiction. What do you think, because in this industry, I feel like that getting burned out thing happens, can happen easily and happen a lot, when, mm -hmm. especially in an environment when you're constantly dealing with people who are failing and then getting back up and trying again, mm -hmm. and especially, especially after you have experience with it. What, what do you suggest to like a lot of people who are out there dealing with that? Do you feel like a lot of that burnout comes from just counter-transference or just not? enough self-care um a little bit of everything so i i um right around that time period i actually started doing a group at the outpatient that i worked at i, I started doing a group on self-care um and we just reviewed we went through this workbook about compassion fatigue and um and vicarious traumatization and burnout and it was like a voluntary group where clinicians would come in the company allowed for an hour once a week and we could kind of come in and we would review like signs and symptoms of vicarious traumatization which is basically your body responds your body starts to respond um almost the same way as as a person that has experienced the trauma mm -hmm. but the when the person is telling you the the trauma your body kind of starts to develop some of the symptoms of uh, actual PTSD so it's like your brain's recognizing the event that the person is going which through. is insane yeah that our, our brains do that mm -hmm. I remember watching like when I first was reading about the empathetic uh, mirror neurons mm -hmm. and how you can do that and I remember like that happened to me when well, my now current ex-wife, our son was born. Mm -hmm. And I remember for like four days after she, um, my son was born, like I had the worst stomach cramps. Wow. And it like happened in the middle of, it started in the middle when she was in labor. Wow. And it just trips me out yeah. to think about how powerful our brains can be. Yeah. Especially when you're really connected to somebody, I, I find that that it happens even more so. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're as a as a counselor, sometimes you are like the secret holder and the secret keeper of people's stuff, you know, that sometimes they've never shared with anybody else in, the, in their life. Um, and so it's like a, it's a pretty sacred bond, you know, or at least I, yeah. I feel like it's a pretty sacred bond and um, would always feel very connected to, you know, the people sitting across from me. And, you know, there's a cumulative effect of hearing these stories over and over and over again. And so I think some of it is, you know, my stuff recognizes their stuff. But at the same time, I always tell therapists to have have a therapist, you know, um, you really got to clients would always like get close to graduating and they, they might be like six weeks sober and they're like, I'm going to be a drug counselor. And I'm like, don't, <laughs> don't do that. Like go be a sponsor first, uh, go sit at, on a therapist couch for like two years and then, and then do it. You know, if you still want to. Yeah. yeah. You hear that. 
Yeah. What are they? What is the term for that? The pink cloud or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, in the AA groups and stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah, because you hear that all in rehab and everything. I think I might get into uh, counseling yeah. with addiction yeah. or whatever. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Which is a it's it's a beautiful concept because it you know people want to help people you mm-hmm. know and at the same time I know like for my own experience I switch from fine art to psychology because I didn't really have a ton of tools and solutions to really look at myself. But I knew that unconsciously I knew there was something going on or something wrong. And so I was like, I'm going to work with addicts. You know, I'm going to work in addiction, not even like really recognizing that I was just trying to fix me. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's a big reason that I even got into this work. And then over the years, um, you really got to iron your stuff out. You got to you got to really examine self and take a look at yourself and do a ton of self-healing and self-work. And I think that is, you know, as a therapist, you're in therapy 24-7. And so I think you have to, I think that's a, a, a good way to remove some of the vicarious traumatization and the burnout is to, you know, kind of continue to work with yourself. Yeah, I think that's extremely important. Cause, I mean, you find it all the time where people are getting burnt out and if you don't take, I mean, I know from my personal experience and just working on my own individuality that if you don't have any kind of self-care and acceptance Mm -hmm. and forgiveness and cut yourself some slack and Mm -hmm. learn to turn it off every once in a while, you get burned out, let alone if you're doing that and helping other people in their own individuality and try to help them grow, it becomes, I mean, twice as heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, people get into the field for different reasons, but sometimes when we're working with other people, it's a, it's kind of like an unconscious desire to Mm -hmm. avoid self. You know, I I think it's important to really put yourself like heal or heal thyself, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point that I asked just because I feel like that is definitely a common thing that comes up all the time Mm -hmm. and people, I mean, it's been around since, I mean, Freud and they all, Freud, Young all talked about the countertransference and mm-hmm. it's such an important thing that I think to keep reminding yourself, one of my biggest fears in like jail and everything else, and you just, when you realize the power of the psyche is what if I just really don't care and I'm just telling myself this because <laughs> we can lie and we can believe something with every electron in our being that mm-hmm. it is absolutely the truth and 100% true and I really want to do this or that and you don't really want to do it. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the biggest things that scared me because our minds are so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it kind of goes back to like every person when you go through a relapse, like everybody who says they're they're ready this time really means it. Mm -hmm. But there's obviously something that doesn't connect along the way. And that was one of the biggest things that scared me kind of grow. What if I just, what if I'm too apathetic? What if I too selfish? What if I just don't care? Yeah. And I just keep going down this path. And it's almost, I almost developed this mistrust with everything I said in my head. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very kind of like, you know, on the edge, like, I do really mean that. I don't know yeah. if I mean that. Like, yeah. this is going crazy. Yeah. And you end up finding yourself in a psych ward. Yeah. No, but, I mean, you question everything. You mm-hmm. know, you start to question every like motive that you have. You even, you, I mean, you question the voice in your head. You know, everybody's got a voice in your head, a, a dialogue. And, mm-hmm. You start to question your relationships. You question—I mean, you question like everything, especially at the very beginning of of this journey. And um, but there, I mean, I, I I believe there's like a you know whether you call it a disease or a parasite, there's a voice you know that is separate from the one that I was born with in this world. You know, and I can hear it now, um, and I can 
hear it in a lot of others. And, you know, in AA, we always say that, you know, our, our brain's stuck on stupid. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's like a broken record. It will never go away. You know, that thing will never be done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got, it's still got work to do. And, and I think, you know, but it is a separate voice from, from, I guess the voice of my heart or, you know, something higher for your true self. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know it becomes so weird with the language when it gets into that mm-hmm. because there, there's, I, you know, I always looked at those, those two voices. There's a voice that says something and a voice that kind of judges it and criticizes whatever mm-hmm. you say. And I have found I am most aligned with who I am, whatever that officially means, mm-hmm. who I am as an individual in my best and most beautiful and truest form when those two voices agree. Yeah. When I can get those to say, okay, yeah, you do really believe that. Because if you pay attention, I remember like just observing this, when you pay attention, like sometimes you just say crap and you don't even mean it mm-hmm. or it's a complete utter lie or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And it's just very bizarre yeah. how those two voices, and I would love to, but we're not going to take this down to a whole deep philosophical conversation <laughs> of, I don't even know where any of those words come from. They just kind of pop in my head and yeah, that's kind yeah. of a whole trippy philosophical, yeah. you know, free will determinism is probably one of my favorite <laughs> philosophical arguments, which is not a good topic for the show. Yeah. So. Uh, off air. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> we'll get into that another time. Yeah. So I wanted to touch basically, on, I really want to touch basically on a lot of with men's mental health mm-hmm. and where that's going. I feel like there's in mental health in general, there's more awareness coming out. Mm-hmm. People are starting to talk about it more, which I think is the one really the only way to really end stigma is just mm-hmm. people to normalize it. Mm-hmm. And I just did an episode, the last episode, I think it was the last episode I released, um, a lady from Spectrum Health and Human Services, and she had a daughter at the age of like nine who suffered with crazy anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, she struggled. Do I put her on meds? I mean, it was just an awesome story, you know, how she got through it. But she just talked about how her daughter came to her one day and said, I don't know if I feel like living at the age of like 12. Yeah. And she just talked about how, A, she she started crying, but she was relieved that she was comfortable enough to come talk to her. Mm -hmm. And I asked her why. And she said, well, because I always made it a household topic in our family. Yeah. And I think that's such a huge way and probably really the only true way to really end stigma and get people to talk about mental Mm -hmm. health is to just, hey, let's talk about it from a young age. It's okay to talk about this. It's okay to show weakness. It's okay to Mm -hmm. feel scared. It's okay to do whatever. And I'm sure you have similar experiences. I remember my brother broke my collarbone when we were younger Mm -hmm. and my dad telling me to stop crying, shake it off. Yeah. Don't be a girl. Yeah. And you know, it's one of those things that I think majority of, especially men grow up. Right. Um, I had to be aware of it with my two kids. My daughter fell. I'd be like, Oh, come here, baby. Mm -hmm. My son falls and cries. Come on, get up. You're fine. And it's just, it's ingrained in us. And I, I guess I want to touch basically on where I'm going with this is where do you see men's mental health going? How do you see the best way to get it out there, to get it aware? Because mm-hmm. so many men to this day still feel that it's weakness to cry. It's mm-hmm. weakness to show anything other than anger and sarcasm. Yeah. And for me, as I mentioned before we hit record, one of the most difficult things in my life to do as a man was to learn to show emotion, learn to cry, mm-hmm. learn to be sad. It's okay. And not let that go into anger. Yeah. And you know, what, what is your point of view on there? Well, how do you feel? How have you dealt with it in your life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely a, a, a topic I'm pretty passionate about only because I experienced it on a, you know, on a, on a lot of levels. Um, I, 
talked to so I'm I'm actually writing like an article on men's mental health so I started to kind of survey some buddies and mm-hmm. you know it's a group of guys that um, some are sober some are not sober you know and, and as in they never had an issue with drugs or alcohol and you know some of them are, are guys that I uh, have gotten sober with over the years and so I was both, you know, and I said, so what is, uh, what are some barriers for, for men like reaching out for help? And one of them, uh, one of my friends said, I think I would know there was an issue by now. You know, he's like young thirties. Someone would have told me there's something wrong with me. And so that was number one reason why you wouldn't go see a therapist. And, and number two, he said, no offense, but I just, I feel like it's a, a, a weakness. You know, I know it's your job, but like, I feel like it, it would be a weakness to, you know, go in and have to talk to somebody. So I thought those two things were like really, really telling. And the other telling part is I sent it out in a group text and then I only got individual texts back, you know, so nobody <laughs> actually wanted to to talk about it in, in the group, you know, and it's a, this is a group of like sober, sober guys, you know, that's mm-hmm. really kind of talk about everything, you know, it's, they're very different relationships in, in my experience. So that point to, you know, there's got to be something wrong with me in order to go, you know, talk to a therapist or is, I thought was the most telling thing, you know, um, about how we approach mental health in general. I'm, I'm even, I don't even like to use the words mental health anymore because I've worked in the field so much and it just, it's a very small box that people consider, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and there's still a ton of stigma and there's still a lot of judgment around it where if people think of mental health, they think of like, you know, the extremes, a, a very extreme, yep. you know, um, Buffalo Psychiatric Center or just, you know, yeah, schizophrenia, yeah. crazy, you know, yes, yeah, suicidal thing. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. they just, oh, yeah, totally take it to an yeah. extreme, yeah, versus mental health, really, is, like everybody has health, everyone mm-hmm. on the planet has health. You know, it's a spectrum. They could be unhealthy and they could be healthy. They could be somewhere in the middle. And mental health is the same way. I think there is, you know, that's a big barrier is we think there's there has to be really something wrong um, with you to reach out. I think women are a little bit better uh, at that. I think there is less stigma for for women to reach out and just talk about what's going on. And I also think that there are a lot more in my experience working with women over the years uh, and growing up with three sisters. Um they seem to be more connected with their bodies and how they feel. Um, So I mentioned this before, but I always ask this question, especially in like groups, you know, where do you experience your your feelings? Physiologically. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, So I would ask that question. Where do you think you feel your feelings? Um, I'm I'm really in my gut. Your gut. Yeah. Okay. So most guys that I ask that question will say my brain. Okay. My head. And the majority of women that I ask will say like my heart, my gut, you know, I feel it in my shoulders. And so guys tend to think about their feelings versus like experience them. So I think women are quicker to realize. um, So kudos to you, you know, that you're like my gut. Um, So I think women are quicker to realize. Oh, I get sick. Yeah. so sick. Oh my gosh. Um, I think women are quicker to realize that something's going on with them. And then I think there's a little bit more permission to like reach out for help in in relationships too, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not, I know I'm making broad, broad statements here, but, um, no, well, I mean, they're broad, they're stereotypical statements mm-hmm. for, you know, a reason. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that's the case for the majority of men. I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. And so I think early on, you know, like the messages that you have have brought up, you know, that like stop crying and man up, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's viewed as, you know, most emotions, I think vulnerable emotions are viewed as a weakness. So I think guys are not, um, taught how to really have a relationship with that. So I think it's suppressed. There's an entire part of being 
a human and living on planet Earth, it's that's really negated and, and suppressed. Um, and so I think, you know, that that's why I think men are more likely to have heart attacks, um, die by suicide. You know, I think it's three and a half times more likely to die by suicide than women. Wow, um, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's just so much isolation as a result of, you know, we were talking before um, we started recording about you know, if you're kind of suppressing your emotion and not really sharing that with other people, how do you feel an intimate connection to them? And, and mm-hmm. you know, the answer typically is you don't. Yep. You know, so I think there's a ton of isolation around, you know, men's mental health as well. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, it's tough. And I don't even, I don't know, at least the men in my life, I, I have very few friends. I would tell people I consider the word friend. I don't use it very loosely anyway. Mm-hmm. And I would say my really my best buddy that I've kind of partnered up to with in my video production side of things, we're comfortable enough in our relationship at this point. Like the one day when he was burnt out from work, he just came in and started crying like mm-hmm. right in front of me. And it was just I just let him be, you know. So, I mean, I have that close shows him. But most of the men I come across, most of the men, I mean, they, they fit in that category. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, nope, I'm not crying. Yeah. I don't cry. Yeah. And one of the things that just always, it always dumbfounded me, people yell at me when I don't go see my primary care physician. Mm-hmm. Like I'm still to this day, get yelled, Huck, you need at least a yearly checkup. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but when you say you go and you just mentioned it, I, mm-hmm. it's perceived as weakness. Go to see a therapist. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with you? Yeah. You know, what the heck? Why do you need to go see a therapist? Yeah. And you almost get criticized for yeah. it. Yeah. And I don't, I would, you know, maybe you have an answer to it. I don't know where in history it's like this happened, this whole dichotomy of physiologically, it's okay, uh, mentally, mm-hmm. psychologically, no, mm-hmm. you're soft and weak. Yeah. You know, if I have a broken leg, people will be yelling at me if I'm toughing it out and walking mm-hmm. on it for three weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there. so they used to be one science, like the medical and physical and the brain and mm-hmm. then uh psychology wanted to be seen as its own science so that so it spread you know it split off and um we are the sciences are merging once again which is great you know there's so much neuroscience research being done and you know information about neurotransmitters in our gut and like polyvagal theory and these things that are branching you know, physical and, and mental, emotional states. Yeah. Once again, yeah. Yeah. Um, but for a long time, they, you know, psychology wanted to be its own separate science and seen as its own separate science. And I think it, the focus was mainly on like quote pathology. And so it would be, you know, the era of Freud working with like very difficult cases and, you know, versus today coming in and just talking to somebody because you have a ton of stressors and you don't really open up, you know, to, to people about it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a very bizarre thing. And I don't know and there's a lot of there's a good argument for when you start labeling something like you said mental health and you take it to an extreme it almost brings on more stigma. Mm-hmm. I find. Yeah. I mean even like saying addiction and all right, we're going to classify that as a disease. Mm-hmm. I feel like brings more stigma on. Yeah. And it's just yeah, I don't know. I think really the only way it ends is when people just keep continuously talking about it. Yeah. And I think it starts in homes. I think it starts with raising your children to be okay with talking about their mental health. Yeah. Being okay to cry. And it's funny because I think, you know, at least as a parent, we always think what our kids are, it's going to reflect on us. Mm-hmm. So if my son's crying at his hockey game, we're all, the whole family, <laughs> his father is going to be perceived as mm-hmm. soft and yeah. girly and, and all of that. And I think that, that's why I started this. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I just want to give people a platform to talk about, share their stories and talk about things yeah. and who are willing to do so and try to just get it out there to the masses because, I mean, we have to keep talking about it. Yeah. I think yeah. as, especially as men, I mean, would you say three times more likely to commit suicide? Yeah, and, three and a half times. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, I know you're, you're starting a, a men's mental health group and I don't know if you want to kind of like talk about a day in your life here at CORE yeah, yeah. and you know, what a session looks like for you and. Yeah. So when people come in, especially guys, a good portion of guys that I work with, um, and I always pointed out and you know, I, I have, I have. I like this job a lot. You know, I have a lot of fun doing it. And and typically when guys come in, if they haven't been to therapy before, mm-hmm. um, they will finish most sentences with uh, the statement, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and a lot of guys come in and they're like, I, so I know there's a problem. I, I think there's a problem, right? I just don't know what, what it is. And I don't really know what to say. So I have been there. So I, you know, and, and this is what I went to school for. This is what I do. And, and so I just ask a lot of prompting questions and we just kind of explore. And, um, eventually, you know, we go a little bit into the past and see how our past experiences, especially like early relationships with like mom and dad and family have impacted kind of the way that we perceive things, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that stuff, is pretty impactful and people don't realize it. Um, a lot, I would say the majority of guys that come in when there's issues with relationships. So they're not sure the direction they want to go or they're struggling finding a good relationship or feeling really as kind of stuck in the mud, floundering. Like I don't, you know, I'm not sure what direction I should be going in or just feel, you know, they kind of checked off the boxes that society tells them to check and they don't really feel anything. Don't understand why they keep dating their mother. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Some of that for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, sessions look really different for everybody, but you know, people come in, we'll do a little check-in, how was your week, and and just kind of get into the work, and the work looks different for everybody, you know. I recently am in the middle of a training uh, for EMDR, which is uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which... Yeah, it's always a mouthful, that one. Yeah, it is. Uh, and so that's basically, it's un- memories that overwhelm, situations that overwhelm the central nervous system don't get processed, don't get sorted. So your brain wants everything like sorted and, and the volume should be turned down a little bit on the memory. So, you know, where it's not filled with shame or intense fear, you know, like a traumatic memory. Um, but when the brain takes on something like that, the central nervous system gets overwhelmed. It doesn't it doesn't sort and store correctly. So it's it stores with the same emotion that uh, was experienced and kind of the same like age. So if it happened when you were eight there, you know, you're almost like stuck at eight in this little memory. So uh, EMDR um, uses eye movements and kind of basically digest that material. Uh, yeah. How have you because I've come across a, a few people amongst my travels recently that mm-hmm. have had PTSD and have gone and have really honestly, they've I've heard mainly good things about it, that it has really helped people. Mm-hmm. Have you been able to use it yet in any like sessions or? No. So I've wanted to do the training for a while uh, and we just did our first round this past weekend. Okay. And the end of March, um, I'll do a, the second one and then I can start. But I have been a consumer of EMDR and it's wild. I mean, you're, so your brain clusters things that, that seem similar together. Um, it's really amazing for addiction. You know, if, if you find somebody that really has some experience with EMDR, and, and mm-hmm. some working knowledge of it, it's it's incredible. And it's not, it uses your brain's ability to sort and process emotion. Yeah, so what is it like you, you have something that you look at? 
mm-hmm. right? And it's supposed to, I mean, I'll really butcher it. I'm going to let you talk <laughs> about it. But yeah, I mean, I kind of, you know, get the print where it relaxes your brain a little bit and yeah, yeah. kind it, of sorts things out. So it uses eye movement like REM, like REM sleep. Your mm-hmm. eyes are darting okay. back and forth. And so, you know, you're, you follow somebody's fingers or um, like a, a light board or sometimes they use tappers which are your hands vibrate back and forth okay but it's bilateral stimulation um and it stimulates both parts of the brain and you know it just goes to you know you identify the memory you identify maybe the core belief related to it and then you know a, a like a new belief that would be more suitable so something like i am bad or i am wrong you know based on a, a past experience in the new cognition might be or the new thought might be you know i am i am worthy or i'm good okay. so you basically you're processing that old stuff those old belief systems into a new more time sensitive or or in this moment you know, material. Man, it goes right back to the beginning of this when we just talked about the brain and the mind and the mm-hmm. psyche, and it is so it is so crazy. It's the wild. power of it. It oh. re- really is. Yeah, yeah. And so much of it is unconscious. Mm-hmm. You know, so that is, uh, you know, that's what we'll do in individual sessions. Um, so if people struggle with like, I don't even know what I would say, you know, I do some exploring and and then other people who've gone to therapy, they know the deal and they come in with a little journal and they're like, this is what I thought this week and this is how I felt. And what do you, what are your thoughts on this? And it's so it's a little bit different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the men's group goes, um, I'm going to start that early April. So April 8th. We're going to do that here uh, in my office. It's large enough for probably about 10 guys. So I'm going to cap it at about 10 guys. And so we're going to talk about, you know, common themes that I see that really men deal with over the last almost decade of of, um, working with men individually. And you're only trying to do that in six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, and for my own self, like sitting in men's groups over the years, you know, I've done a lot of men's work. And so I, I love doing it and it's going to be a very kind of judgment free space. Um, so if guys are hearing this and they're thinking, you know, bring the tissues and it's going to be, uh, you know, everybody's just going to cry and talk about the relationship with their mom. That's not, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and so it's, I, I think when there's a, there's a study out right now that says the higher the correlation to like traditional masculinity. So traditional masculinity as in I hate the word like toxic masculinity, but that's probably the things that people are thinking about. But it's uh, it's rigidity. It's like rough and tough. Uh, it's, you know, man up, don't cry, that sort of thing. The higher the personality is correlated to that, um, the more likely to deal with like depression and suicidal um, ideation. Okay. The goal here would be to um, not change somebody's personality, but just really kind of create a space where guys can finally like acknowledge what's actually there. You know, because that's the issue is is it's not like we're so it's almost like we're going to stop lying. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I do feel hurt. I do feel fear. I am afraid of judgment. It doesn't matter if it's a CEO of the company or the guy that cleans the bathrooms. We as human beings are afraid of the opinion of other people. We're going to start talking about that, you know, and, you know, utilizing this idea of like holding space for other men. So guys tend to approach feelings, at least in my experience, guys tend to approach feelings like problems that, you know, have it's like a puzzle that we're going to solve. You know, Uh, it's a problem (laughs) that I'm going to fix. You know, I got to fix this feeling. And so learning to hold space or creating a container large enough to hold somebody's emotional experience without trying to fix it for them is medicine in and of itself. It's amazing. Just 
finding something and identifying it is so huge. You know, the mm-hmm. first step to quitting is admitting. Yeah. And it's, I mean, but it's so true. It's mm-hmm. an annoying cliche saying, but I mean, that's the biggest, biggest piece of it. I think there's this clinical psychologist I really like, and he always brings up this, um, this kid story. Mm-hmm. It's called, I don't know if I shared this with you, but it's called the uh, author's Jack Kent and it's called, what the hell is it called? There's a, there's a dragon in the room or something mm-hmm. or whatever. But this kid you know, wakes up and has a dragon at the end of his bed about the size of a cat. And he tells his mom and he she goes, there's no such thing as dragons. And the dragon gets bigger. And, he, you know, he eats his pancakes at breakfast. And he goes, mom, the dragon ate my pancakes. And she mm-hmm. goes, there's no such thing as dragons. And the dragon keeps getting bigger until like the house is off the foundation. Mm-hmm. And then the, the father comes home and goes, hey, there's a dragon in the house and it gets <laughs> smaller. And I always love that example because that's what the tiniest little problem that we don't say anything about, that we yeah. don't identify, yeah. that we don't talk about, that right. we don't face, we don't look at, becomes this huge, huge thing. Yeah. And, you know, even in my case was a, a heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's just so insane how something, it could be the tiniest thing from like, hey, you didn't fold my laundry the right way to maybe something in your mind of as far as self-worth or you failed mm-hmm. at something and you don't feel good about it. And then that can turn into something so big. Yeah. So that piece of just finding something, identifying it mm-hmm. is so important because yeah. then you can figure out how to take care of it. Yeah. But until yeah. you ignore it, as long as you're ignoring it, you have no idea what yeah. the issue is. You don't know how to fix it yeah. or take care of it or yeah. get better at it. Yeah. And so I think that's awesome. I think that's a, a great thing. And I think to get it out to people that, especially again, since we're talking men, it's okay to come in and talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's happening. You know, when you were talking, I was thinking about the quote, we're only as sick as our secrets, Mm. you know, and it's it's not like we're making stuff up. We're just pointing at something that's already there. Yeah. You know, we were just taught at a at a really young age, like here, are, here are basically here is the emotion that you're allowed to express, which is anger. So everything's going to convert into anger and rage and and shut down. You know, I would say the majority of women that I work with, their main complaint about their significant others, if they're in a heterosexual relationship, is that the guys are emotionally unavailable or shut down, you know, and I think that's kind of a a natural response when people are under stress and like emotion builds up over time because stress is cumulative that people go into a state of you know they call it like dorsal vagal and polyvagal theory which is just immobilization it's like fight mm-hmm. flight and freeze it's when you're when you're under stress for such a long period of time you just drop down into system shutdown you know and so i always when i explain that to clients i always you know think about have them think about like homer simpson you know just spacing out drooling in front of the tv <laughs> you know and that's where i want to be and to to move out of fight or flight and freeze uh, and into what they call like social engagement or just to be connected at the heart with other people, you have to move from system shutdown into that stress state. And what that looks like is coming home and talking about your day, even though you don't want to, you know, so it's a little bit of a plug for therapy, any therapist, not just me, but it's also a plug for just, you know, talking about how you feel to other human mm-hmm. beings. And there's a power in that. Um, I think what makes group really powerful is what you're talking about before is the power of identification, you know? And so if you, if you have a million of those little dragons that are now huge dragons and you don't even know what they are anymore, and there's still that state of denial, which the acronym I like for denial is don't even notice I am lying. It's really hard to see them anymore, you know? So then if some guy shares and says, yeah, I, I is, 
you know, a, a secret addiction that I have, or I really, you know, here's my stuff with imposter syndrome. And then somebody hears that and they're like, oh man, that I, that's me too. Like, holy crap. Mm. You know, I can't believe that you think like that too. I thought I was the only one on the planet to have these thoughts and these feelings. Yeah. That's, that's always the thing too. I think just like expressing something and saying it out loud can help so many other people when they hear it. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, wow. Oh, I'm not the only one who goes through that. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself can be such a helpful thing. Like, I'm not the only, like, I thought I was totally crazy. Yeah. And yeah, I I think that's super important. I think that's awesome. Um, I guess, you know, we kind of talked a lot on mental health and we are, I guess, coming to the end. But, you know, as far as like addiction... Do you, is it just, do you deal with people who've suffered with, let's use the correct, politically correct term, substance use? Mm-hmm. Do you have a lot of people who come in and see you that have struggled with substance use? Do you find a correlation? I know a lot of um, people I've come across through rehab and all that have obviously struggled with both. Yeah. Usually yeah. that's the case. I mean, I've, I've tend to, I think we might've touched base on it. I really think a lot of, you know, substance use comes from that whole lack of connection, lack yeah. of, you know, everything. Yeah. And so what is kind of like your experience as far as therapy goes? With yeah. That? Um, I see in private practice, I see addiction quite a bit, you know, and even if people are coming in because they feel depressed, once we sit down and get to know each other, there's usually an issue with alcohol Something. or, you know, it could be sex, could be pornography, you know, addiction can mean a lot of different things. I, in private practice, I like, you know, I really encourage people that I know that are sober for a little bit to go back and to therapy, you know, especially mm-hmm. after like the first year or two and reconnect your, I know, you know, I've listened to some of your podcasts where I, so I know your situation is different where you've like had your mom, you've had your sister out on here. That is not the norm you know no Um, no it's not (laughs) so typically the norm unless you go to treatment or unless you're very involved in meetings and even if you are this this still isn't the norm but it's almost like just don't talk about it you know when the person gets sober and just don't talk about it i and and that you know to some degree that's probably on the person with the substance use disorder like don't keep stop bringing it up. I don't want to think about this, you know? And so when people don't have some sort of like program or some sort of like healing way to deal with this, a lot of times they're like, I just want to shut the door on the past and just keep it moving. Um, it's unrealistic though, you know, especially becomes heavy too. It it is heavy, you know, and it's great to be driving forward. But, um, when you have a bunch of demons in your back mirror, they are staying in that backseat until you iron that stuff out. And so you, until you really start to talk about that stuff with somebody. I always tell families that, you know, they, they ask like, when are we going to get him back? When are we going to get her back? You know, are we ever going to see the version before the addiction? And my answer is an honest one, which is um, never, you're never going to get that, that kid back. That kid, when, when the rest of the family was at like little brother or sister soccer games, he was copping dope on, on the West side of Buffalo or the East side of Buffalo or wherever they were Mm -hmm. seeing things that change you doing things that change you it's not normal to you know be taking money from a family member and saying i hate myself for doing this and doing it anyway you know you you are changed as a result of doing some of the stuff that that people do from addiction you know it's unrealistic to say i'm just gonna i'm just gonna close the door on this and just keep my feet moving you know yes Um, it is no, mm-hmm. oh, I know for that from firsthand experience. I remember I tried to get, I got clean on my own for like a month mm-hmm. and that's what it was. I just stopped using my girlfriend said, go to your parents, get your crap together. Mm-hmm. And so I did stop using, 
you know, went through withdrawals there, but I didn't want to talk about it. So it's like, all right, I'm going to keep all this underneath the carpet. Mm -hmm. All right. We kind of make that look nice and we're not going to talk about nothing. We're all going to go on with our lives. Mm -hmm. And that just becomes so heavy. So heavy. And it makes you a very controlling person, Mm -hmm. you know? So when you have this, this stuff underneath there, you just, you know, people become real obsessive. They work 70 hours a week or they jump into a relationship and they're going to get married yep. in like three hours, you know? <laughs> so they or even exercise. I've seen people do oh, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, converting into steroids and addicts, individuals with substance use disorders tend to be very mentally obsessive and, you know, ha- develop some compulsions. Yeah. That's a, that was a huge thing, I think. And, you know, it was tough because every person's so different. And even with my family, I think a, the education helped. Um, them educating themselves mm-hmm. and learning what to do, how they should do it. And obviously, again, that's different for every individual. But I think having the podcast obviously helped. Yeah. Hey, let's sit down and do an episode and talk about it. Yeah. And I mean, my family, we're, we're pretty open and we talk a lot to begin with. Mm-hmm. You know, a, another thing that I think really helped me with my family is we would crack jokes about it. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there's nothing funny about me stealing from my girlfriend's teenage kids yeah but you know even now like even her daughter's 16 and she you know we make jokes about it Mm -hmm. and laugh and yeah um you know that's helped me i'm not saying that's obviously the case for everybody yeah but that was something i always i have to like laugh about it yeah another big thing that you brought up about you know when am i gonna get my old self back or Mm -hmm. whoever i remember saying that in rehab i can't wait to have my old life back and all that and i remember like i was like wait I hated that person before my yeah. action. Like I didn't even like that yeah. old person. And that person started doing drugs. Yeah. And that <laughs> yeah. person started doing drugs. So yeah. I was always like, I can't wait to get my new life going. Yeah. I, you know, I totally yeah. changed up my language with that because yeah. I wrote a blog, one of my favorite blogs, My Paradoxical Addiction. Mm-hmm. And I talked about it. It's so weird that all these messed up things I did because of this, mm-hmm. because of this addiction. And I mean, obviously that's not the main root of it but anyway you know stealing to get drugs from kids and i stole my dead brother and sister's jewelry from my parents and pawned it Mm. you know all these messed up things that still get sick to my stomach when i think about yeah but if it wasn't for that if it wasn't for all those things i did it wasn't for having to go to jail and go into rehab and go Mm -hmm. through hell i would not be the person or the man i'm becoming today yeah and i'm almost like thankful for it you know in that weird sense of if this didn't happen i wouldn't be who i am when that like switch went off in my head i was like that's like one of my mission statements to get people to listen it's the crappy things you've done the messed up things your failures Mm -hmm. those may in the moment seem so meaningless but if you can learn from them and grow from them they become so meaningful yeah in such a weird paradoxical yeah crappy beautiful way that it it changes your life and you would never want to go back and redo it any other way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think like people in recovery have a different outlook on life, you know, Mm -hmm. especially, especially former like IV opiate, you know, users where, or, you know, really anything, but the perspective is, I don't know, just one of gratitude and humility and -hmm. just knowing that like, if you start being an asshole again, you are going to, you know, <laughs> we're going down that we're, that's happening again. You know, yep. I think it, 
it requires a level of honesty and humility and uh, and and introspection. So you have to really look at yourself. And you know, I the majority of my good friends are are people in re, uh, long term recovery. And yeah, it just uh, it's a it's a totally different. It does change you, but I think when you get out on the other side, um, makes you a very compassionate, understanding person and a person that's really gone through a lot. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, there's just like a, a sense about people afterwards. Yep. Yep. How do people get in touch with you? How do people find you and core mental health? Yeah. Um, So I practice out of core mental health counseling. Um, So we're at 374 Delaware. You know, people can check out the website, corementalhealthcounseling.com. I'm pretty active on social media, both on Instagram and Facebook for Brian Costello Counseling. So you can check that out. That's C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O? Yep. That's correct. You know, the phone number's listed on there. You know, so if people want to call, it's uh, 716-247-6425. You know, for the men's group, you know, shoot me an email or give me a call if you want any more questions. And I created a Facebook event page for for the, for, the uh, for that group. group. Yeah. But if people don't, you know, if they want to keep it anonymous, then they can just kind of forward me a message in any of those ways. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks for dealing with my amateur acts today. <laughs> Forgot headphones. So Great. hopefully this sounds good mm-hmm. or we'll have to redo it. <laughs> yeah. Well, my pleasure. Thank you so, for having me. I yeah. really appreciate it. No problem. All right. I'll talk to you, Brian. Yeah. Okay, everybody, hope you enjoyed that episode. It was a great conversation with Brian. As I said in the intro, you can get the Core Mental Health website through the links. You can also sign up for Brian's men's group in the links below. I will also link his social media pages down there and everything else so you can get in touch with him and find out what the deal is with that. And that is all, folks. Have a great week, and I will be talking to you soon. Much love. Peace out.